Right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for being here this morning, and thank you for for taking this time on a Sunday morning to be part of a family and open in prayer. And then we're going to talk today about perception. Heavenly Father, just thank you for the opportunity for us to meet this morning. I thank you for the opportunity for us to be able to meet freely and free of persecution in a world where so often other believers are not able to do what we're doing this morning. I ask that your word be heard today and that these be your words out of my mouth rather than mine. Heavenly Father, just thank you and praise your holy name. Amen. And welcome everyone online. So we're going to talk about perception and perception is a really critical thing for us to understand. Who knows that perception can actually be more important than reality sometimes, that how you feel about things, even if it doesn't seem rational to other people, actually is what matters. It's real to you and it drives your understanding of how you want to respond to stuff. Perception drives our behaviour. Now, come on, Ralph. Work with me here, sunshine. I'm pressing my button. Yes, there we go. Now, now, this is my shed. Now, when I walk into this shed, I see it and I see possibility. I see opportunity. There's a mannequin down here and I can dress the mannequin or the hands. You probably can't see it, but the hand's down there. I'm not sure why the hand's not connected to the mannequin, but I see opportunity and possibility. I know where everything is. I really know where everything is. I've got, like, this is my, this is my plumbing box up here. This has got all the bits here for, for working on my, my, my pipes and stuff, well, or for the, like, sewage pipes and, and waste pipes. And this box down here... That's got all my watering system pipes and then this bit here's got all the little connections for the drippers and then over, or there's, there's party boxes up there, there's a Cooper's box up there. Don't tell anyone we're in we're church. Just pretend you didn't see that bit. Then I've got all my screws over there. I know where everything is and I just see possibility. Now there's another person here today who when that person who shall remain nameless, enters into this room, they don't see what I see. They may, on occasion, say, how do you find anything in here? On occasion, they may say, this is a disgrace. They may even, on occasion, doubt my vision. Like, this is... This is unbelievable. Like it, is, it is truly, and I, my heart breaks a little bit when it happens. There's a little part of me dies. Everything in this space is important to me because I perceive it to be important to me. But someone else has a very different view of it. How we perceive things changes our reality. Now, I should note, when I was planning this, I had actually considered taking a photo of one of my children's rooms Um, which would have allowed us to have a similar type of conversation, but ironically, I would have been on the other side of it saying, that's a disgrace, and that particular child would have said, no, I know where everything is. But anyway, perception drives our reality. Now, this is the Hubble Space Telescope. It's been up there for nearly 20 years now, uh, sitting above the Earth's atmosphere, looking out into deep space. It was put up there because it was recognised that even the best... best optical telescopes that we have 
in the world have to look through dust and light and noise and would never really get all the images we want. The idea of having the Hubble's telescope is it can sit up outside of the atmosphere and get crystal clear images staring into distant space. And many of us would have seen images of those, beautiful images of, of galaxies, of nebula, of big planets, some things that we'd never imagined being able to see before. And it's got different cameras on there that can look in and see different elements of light. And I reckon it's pretty cool. Now, this is part of what the Hubble telescope can see. It's called the Hubble Legacy Field. You know that, helpfully because there's a label on there, so that makes it a whole lot easier to understand what it actually is doing. But what is happening in this field is it's a little bit different. It's not there just to take the happy snaps of Saturn or Jupiter as they fly past. This is looking at one section of the sky, and it's been looking at the same section of the sky for 14 years. Now, to give you a context of what that big white line looks like as far as how big it is. It's about the size of the moon. So if you put your thumb out like that, that's about how much of the sky it's actually looking at. And it's been doing, looking the same spot for, for 14 years. And it has to look there so long to try and extract all of the light out that's coming from there. And what you realise when you, when you start looking at it, when they started counting these up and zooming right into it, that there's all these little dots. Now, those dots, we sort of assume that they're just stars, but they're not actually stars because when you start zooming in, you suddenly discover that there's more detail to them. And you can see the different shapes that come up here. You can see these shapes here and that over there. And they started counting all of the little dots that were there and they started zooming in further. And what they discovered was that in that spot, that, that area just as big as your thumb looking up into the sky, there was over 265,000 galaxies. Now, galaxies like our Milky Way, so not just our solar system, not just with our sun and, and the planets, the entire Milky Way, there's 265,000 of them, and that's one of the galaxies that's there. Now, I've got another image that would give you a little bit more indication. Now, this isn't exactly the same galaxy as I showed a minute ago, but it's the same type of galaxy. It has the same structure. It has this swirling clouds of dust, stars in the middle. It's got planets and, and exoplanets in there. It's got a, big, a couple of big nebula right bang in the middle of it. But when you look into that little spot, 265,000 galaxies just in that one spot. And that's just what they've seen so far. Depending on your experience and background, you will have very different responses when you look at that. There's a guy called Carl Sagan, who's probably one of the most well-known cosmologists. And he really pioneered a lot of modern thinking around cosmology. And he wrote this shortly after the, um, uh, one of the first images that ever actually been taken of the Earth. It was taken by a little satellite uh, or a, a, a mission that was sent out to go beyond the solar system and it took an image of the Earth looking backwards over its shoulder and you could see the Earth and, and the other planets and then the sun. And he saw this pale blue dot 
And he wrote a book called The Pale Blue Dot. And this is one of the quotes from it. Who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star, the sun, lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. So he looked at images like the one we saw before and he saw the majesty of it, but he saw in that insignificance for people. He saw us as being small. He saw, he saw the littleness of who it is that it is to be human. C.S. Lewis wrote years before Carl Sagan, but had wrote, written about looking into the stars. And he wrote this, this quote, If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creature with eyes, we should never know it was dark. And dark would be without meaning. So C.S. Lewis looked into the cosmos and looked into the darkness of the world and the darkness of the skies. And he actually, in that, because he could see the stars, he could see meaning and he could see value and he could see purpose. So two very different people with two very different perceptions, have looked into the same thing and formed two very different views about what it means to be human and what it means to be alive on this earth. Now, that perception and that different perception is actually called cognitive bias. And cognitive bias is the bias that we each have. If anyone ever tells you they're not biased, it's wrong, they are. The mere fact that they're telling you they're not biased tells you that they are, by definition, biased because they have a skewed view of their own understanding. Cognitive bias is, and this is a quote um, from what the formal definition of it is, a cognitive bias is a systematic pattern of deviation from the norm or rationality in judgment. Individuals create their own subjective social reality from their perception of the input. So whatever the inputs have been in in their lives, whether it's experiences or people or other things, whatever those inputs are, they create, we all create, a subjective assessment of social reality based on those inputs. And the cognitive biases may sometimes lead to perceptual distortion, inaccurate judgment, illogical interpretation, or what is broadly called irrationality. We all have cognitive bias. There's a person in this room who has a deep-seated cognitive bias that prevents them from properly understanding the full value of the opportunity that exists in my shed. <laughs> we all have those biases, and it'll be a bias based upon whether or not you grew up in a family where there was divorce. It will change your perception of what relationships could be or should be. If you grew up, my, my grandmother was constantly making food. She, we would go, we would organise to have a, a family Christmas together or there, we'd be having a family meal together and there would be more food than you could imagine because my grandmother had grown up in the Depression and so to have 
plenty of food and to have good food and to have it formally was a sign that you'd been able to recover from it. She was always, that, that experience of the depression had anchored her understanding and a provider with a skewed view of the world. And even when we were saying, hey, look, we're just happy to have a barbecue, she'd be like, no, no, no you can't have that because that's, that, that's, that's not a sign of success. We've got to have formal roast dinner meals, we've got to have all the desserts, all the rest. We didn't argue too much with you. You'd put up the token argument, but... But her experience had shaped her perception of what was going on. It happens to all of us. It, all of us, our understanding of the world around us is shaped by our experience. Now, why am I saying any of this? And do you even care about it or should you even care about it? I suspect some of you are sitting there going whatever, dude, like seriously, you're showing us pictures of uh, satellites and stars, I came here to go to church and if we could just wrap this up quickly, that'd be great. Why are we talking about cognitive bias and psychology and stuff like that? Because we have to. Because we have to, because we don't understand that the way we see the world is not the way that everyone else sees the world. We have, we still live in many ways as a church the way our parents or their parents lived in society. We sort of assumed that we're, we, phrases like, oh, we're a Christian nation and, and we, we're a Judeo, we have this Judeo-Christian heritage. We sort of have this assumption that people understand what we're talking about and so we can sit there and go, oh, well, the Bible says X. But for the first time in generations, we will be saying the Bible said whatever to people who have never actually even opened the Bible. Our parents or our parents' parents could have said, if they were talking about their beliefs, they could say, well, in the Bible it says X, and, they, and some, the person they're talking to may not believe it, but they'd at least know what the Bible is. They may have a Bible at home. But in a post-Christian world, the world in which we're operating in, most of the people around us don't share that same knowledge and background. And so they have a very different perspective of what's actually going on. And as a consequence, some of what we share about Jesus shortchanges as Jesus because we share based upon our own experience, our own background, our own biases. We all know that there are a great many social issues that are discussed at length. And there are many Christian commentators and you know, many different YouTube things you can go on to and different pastors who are preaching sermons about some of those social issues. We know that there is a lot changing in our world. We're having conversations about what are the structures of families and how should they be structured in ways that didn't happen 20 or 30 years ago. We're having discussions about identity that we never had 20 or 30 years ago. And as a church, we can sit there and go, well, well, we just shouldn't talk about it because it's wrong. And sometimes we do that. Well, sometimes we have glib statements like, well, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we think, well, that'll solve it. That'll sort it out. If I just say that, that'll, that'll change everyone's mind. But perception's a powerful thing. And however, however validated you feel or that I feel when we make these statements, 
if you haven't had to live through it, if you haven't had to experience it, it's actually all pretty hollow. And so someone telling me, oh, well, this is the view you should have on, on gay marriage or this is the view you should have on, the, on identity and so on. It's great that people have those views and they can share them, but it doesn't help me with the fact that my best mate's gay. It doesn't give me anything to work with. And in fact, if I'm to talk to my friends, I have to have something far more substantive than, well, here's a few, here's a few glib lines. If you're people who are dealing with issues of identity within their family that can really wrench apart families as you're trying to work with it, being told, well, it's just, this is just the way it is by someone in church doesn't help much when you're actually sitting there going, well, I've still got to live with these people. These are, these are still people in my life that I have to maintain a relationship with. We as a church cannot and must not allow ourselves to narrow down who Jesus is based upon our experience and our perception and our assumption that everyone else will see it the same way. Because if we do, we sell Jesus short to ourselves and we sell Jesus short to the world that he came to save. We cannot and must not guilt people into repentance. We cannot hold people down by our observations of what worked. All we can do is say, this is Jesus and this is all of who he is and what it is that he can be to you. So when we start looking at that, well, where, where do we go to from there? What do we actually do with it? We are, as a church, going to work through over the next many months, we've put together a series that's 16 weeks of going through and unpicking what do the Gospels actually say about Jesus. Now, that's not a particularly revolutionary series structure within a church, Really? You're going to preach out of the Gospels about Jesus? Well, yep, we, we didn't claim to be original. But we are taking the time to go through and say, what is it that's actually coming out of it? Now, I'm a pretty pragmatic person. I'm an engineer. I'm, I'm not that smart in many areas. So I just think about the world in a certain way. And I say that, noting my own cognitive bias, so you don't have to appreciate it. I'm letting you know that you've got the freedom to not observe the way that I, the world I do. But I sit there and I open up the Bible and I say, well, I accept that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So I accept that. If someone's watching and wants to argue with me about that, that's, we can have a conversation separately. But as a, as a starting precept, I accept that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And so therefore, if I open the word of God, I can assume that if it's important to God, it'll be in the Bible. I can also then assume that if it's not important to God, it won't be in the Bible. And much to my grave and abject despair, God makes no reference to why the Essendon Football Club is the greatest football club that's ever been created. I have to accept, sadly, that maybe it's not on God's list of priorities. I'm sorry. And for avoidance of doubt, Dave, who's sitting in the front, no, it's not that he didn't mention Essendon Football Club because he prefers rugby league. He equally had less to say about rugby league than he did about AFL <laughs> and even less about Queensland. 
or New South Wales. Well, I don't know, whatever you guys all talk about. But the point is that we can sit there and we can look at the Bible and say, if it's important to God, we can draw some conclusions about what's actually in there. And in fact, when you start going through it and say, well, what are the things that he spent time talking about? The fact that anything is in there tells us that it's important to God, but he spends a lot more time telling us about why he created us and what he wanted to do in relationship with us than, than he did how. Now, it's not to say that it's the how and the when isn't important, but he's saying to us, the thing he wants us to know is why. But above and beyond that, when you go through and just count for sheer number of references, the thing that God wants us to talk about more than anything else, it's a little secret, it's Jesus. God, through, his, through the authors, authors of the Old Testament and the New Testament, talks about Jesus more than anything else, and that should surely tell us something about what we need to understand. But it also then gives us a sense of saying, well, if God had just wanted in his book, like if I was God and I was writing a book about my creation and Jesus, my son, who was there with me at the beginning, I'd just go, like, right, Dave, can you write a book about when Jesus was alive? And then, right, Pete, can you write a book about when he was not alive? And then we've got it done. It's all sorted. But we didn't do that didn't end up with that. In fact, we had four different authors wrote about Jesus in four different ways. And so the question is, well, why on earth did we end up with four books telling us all about the same person from four different perspectives? And the answer to it is actually really simple. It's because Jesus was bigger than any one person could actually describe. Jesus was like that, that, that immensity of the universe where one author could go in and zoom in and go, this is, this is a perspective of Jesus that I've got. But then you move a couple of degrees over, another author's been able to talk about another perspective. And neither of them are wrong. They're just adding in to the colour and complexity of who this King Jesus is. And we can see this as we actually work through the Gospels. Now, as I said, the, the series is not particularly original. We're talking about Jesus and we're going through the Gospels. I'm not going to be particularly original when I choose out my verses because we're just going to go to the first verse of each book and then the last verse of each gospel. It's not because I'm lazy, but because the words that the authors use tell us a bit about how they want to set up and us to understand what they're going to share with us. And so what does Matthew say in his very first verse? Matthew 1.1 makes... These notes are really easy. You can remember it. It's just the first one and the last one of each gospel. This is a record of the ancestors of the Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. In one translation, it says a son of David and a son of Abraham. So Matthew, he's writing a whole book on Jesus. And the first thing he says, you need to know that Jesus was part of a family. He was a descendant of a lineage. He was a descendant of kings. Jesus was part of a family and he was a fulfilment of that family. But where does Matthew finish then? Matthew 28, 20. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of you, 
be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew starts by telling you, hey, Jesus was part of a family. And he finishes by saying, obey the commandments and, I will, and he will be with you till the end of the age. Jesus will be there for, for eternity. And so he's connecting you to his heritage, but he's connecting you to his legacy, to Jesus' legacy. That's what Matthew wants us to know. And over four weeks, we're going to unpick that further, that, that Matthew wanted us to understand that we are, Jesus was the son of King David. He came from that lineage, that he want us to, wants us to understand that we are, that that family is for all, that it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for the, the Gentiles, it was for everyone, that he wanted that family to expand, that he wanted the, us to understand that that family is for the least of the individuals, that it was for the poor people, for the destitute, that the family was explicitly designed to be able to bring those people into it. And he wanted the family to grow. So that's, that's Matthew's perspective of the world. That's where Matthew's coming from. Where do we get to with Mark? Mark's first verse. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. So Mark, he doesn't care about Jewish history. He hasn't, he's just like, no, that is not important. The thing you need to know, the thing you need to know, it's good news. The very first line, it's good news. It's been foretold and he's the Messiah. He's, he's here for you. That's what Mark wants you to know. Because his perspective, he's like, all of that other history stuff, it's great. All of that family genealogy stuff, it's good. But the most important thing for Mark was us to understand that Jesus was here as a miraculous saviour a healer and a fulfiller of prophecy. That's what Mark was getting at. So where do we get to with Luke? Now Luke's a bit different. Luke 1.1 and we'll read 1.1 to 1.4. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. I use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorific Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. It's a bit of a downer, really. Like Mark, Matthew's sitting there going, hey, he's part of the, the Jewish lineage. Here's everything. Obey my commands. He'll be there for the end of the age. Mark's telling you that, isn't this great? Here's good news. He's going to heal you. He's, he's going to be he's the Messiah that you were promised. And Luke's just like, while I went out and I checked, he was there and I wrote it down. <laughs> because Luke has approached it from a very different perspective. He's come from it of that understanding of going, no, no, what matters here is to document what occurred. It's like he's, he's gone out and done a true, true crime podcast of what occurred. Like, Theophilus, you've got to listen to this. Here's what occurred. I went out, I spoke to the eyewitnesses, and I've documented it. This is what you needed to know. And so we can see from that that Luke has a quite different perspective around 
what was important in the character of Jesus. And what he wanted Theophilus to know is, whatever you've heard, it's true. What you've heard about Jesus, I've verified it. It was real. It's not just made up. Because for Luke, the facts of Jesus' existence mattered. And we see then at the end of Luke, verse 24, 50, oh sorry, chapter 24, verses 50 through 53, Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifted his hands to heaven. He blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. So Luke, once again, as someone who was focused on evidence and hard information, thought it was important that he note that, they, that Jesus went to heaven in Bethany and then they went back to the temple and were praising God because these were important facts. They weren't just trivial, trivial details. They weren't just fripperies on the side. They were things that he believed other people need to do, understand and know about him. And then we get to John. And John's like, move over everyone. I'm going to do this different. He doesn't care about the history. He doesn't care about the genealogy. He's not sitting there dwelling on that and he did this and he did this and he did this. John starts with something quite different. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning... The Word already existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never be extinguished. So John is starting to go like, okay, before I tell you anything about Jesus, you have to understand this one fundamental point that Jesus is God and Jesus was there at the start and he is there to bring light. That's what you've got to understand. And you can go and do your history and you can go and do your genealogy, but unless you accept this bit, this is the bit that I want you to understand. That's what John's trying to get across to us. John comes from a different angle because of his experience and because of his engagement with Jesus, it gives him a different appreciation. John wanted us to understand that Jesus was with God and was God. And we see then in the final verses of, John, of, of the Gospel of John, if we just bring that up, and Jesus did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. I love the fact that he uses the word suppose. Like he's so precise in his language at the start. And like the word was with God and the word was God. And at the end he's like, yeah, I suppose. I suppose the whole world could not contain them. But his point is, is that he's getting across that idea of the bigness and the magnitude of what Jesus was doing. The greatness of the, the person and the manhood of Jesus as the image of God. So, what image of Jesus do you get drawn to? I know my, by my own experience, my tendency is if I had to go and say, well, I want to understand something about Jesus' life, my natural point would probably be to go to Luke because I love history and I love sort of that structure that comes from the history and the documentation of it. My kids buy me books based upon the most boring one they can find in the, in the bookshop. They know that I like that. So I sort of like just like ticking through that. And then maybe like the, the genealogy part of Matthew is sort of cool, understanding some of that history. Like that's where I naturally go to. 
But if I'm talking about Jesus to someone else and they don't have that bent and they don't have that perspective, then I'll just be like ships in the night. I'll be telling them something about history and they'll just like, whatever, dude. Like, I just don't care. But there are people that you could be talking to where if you said, no, this is about salvation, this is about healing, this is about these other elements, suddenly their lights, lights go on in their eyes. They're like, yes, I get that. But equally, there are those of us who have an experience, our experiential engagement with the church has been, I love, I love praise and worship and I love, I love Holy Spirit and I love the, the healing and the lay of hands and all the rest of it. And, and if that's you, and that's great, but if that's you and you come and try and talk to an engineer about that sort of stuff, we're just going to look at you and go, dude, seriously. Like, no, I just don't want to hear it. It's not where my head's at. So our issue here is that our perspectives and our experience is not enough to fully encompass who Jesus is. And that's why the series is called Jesus More Than You Know, because we're going to go through and unpack it because whatever your experience of Jesus is, whether you've been in, in church since the day you were born, whether you've been to Bible college, you've done all the study, whatever your, what, however much knowledge you think you have, there is more. And if you've just turned up and this is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus, then whatever I've said about Jesus is not enough. There is more. There is more than we know. There's more than you know. And we have to be able to encompass that and appreciate that. Aristotle wrote these words many years ago. Persuasion is achieved by the speaker's personal character. When the speech is spoken as to make us think him credible, sorry, to make us think him credible. We believe good men more fully and more readily than others. And this is true generally, whatever the question is, and absolutely true what exact certainty is, where exact certainty is impossible and opinions are divided. If we are to persuade people of our faith and persuade people of the value of Jesus, we have to be able to give full account to who Jesus is. And in a world as we are in, where many people have limited knowledge of the Bible and have limited knowledge of what the context is, we cannot rely on, on just being able to say, well, this is what the Bible said, or this is the Bible told me so, or Jesus said. We actually have to start a long way before that and start taking people through a journey of what this means and why it's important. I'm not sure where each of you are today. I'm not sure where each of you come from in your experience. But when people look at us, we need to, if you're a believer already, we need people to be able to say, hey, I, there's something there. But we also need to be able to make sure that we don't narrow down that perspective too much, that the perspective of Jesus that we share is just that little, little bit up there. Yep, that's about all of the Jesus I can see. And I can tell you a lot about what's in there. And I can even go down deeper and I can tell you right down, I can zoom into that little bit because I've read the, read the Gospels. I can zoom right in to that, that little galaxy of my experience of Jesus. And I can tell you all the detail about it. And we might feel really good about the fact that we can give them that much information. 
But unless we're willing to zoom back out and start to realise that our little perspective is only a very small element of who Jesus is, then we are missing one of the great opportunities that we have to share the joy and the life of our King Jesus. That's what matters. That's what matters. Jesus came here to give his life for us so that we could be in relationship with him, that we could come back into relationship is part of a family created by God for his enjoyment. He brought us back. He brought Jesus to us to bring us back into that fold and to heal us and to bring fullness and life to us. He brought us back to say, no, Jesus is someone living in this world, in this, in this history that we have had. And he's brought us back into a relationship with Jesus so we can understand that we were created to be with him. We are very privileged to be able to turn up to church on a Sunday morning. We're privileged to have the experiences that we have. We're privileged to be able to be here on a morning knowing that we're not going to be persecuted for, being, for turning up. No one's going to put a gun to our head. But because of that privilege, we sometimes get lazy. And we sometimes get relaxed about how much we actually have to be able to, to show Jesus and share who he is. And there are people around the world right now, there's people in this town right now who don't know it yet, but they need to be able to cry out to King Jesus and to come in relationship with him. That's our purpose. Our purpose is in to be in relationship with him, to be part of a family and to grow that family so that there are others who can call on, on our king. It's what matters. It's why we do this. It's why we go through all of this effort. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me because we're going to close in prayer in a moment. And as we stand... And I pray for you, if, if, if this is a different perspective of Jesus, or if you've been a Christian for a long time or a short time, I'm just going to pray that over these next months that you are given a different view of who King Jesus is, a different understanding, a different revelation, a different engagement with him because he's bigger than who you know him to be. And if you're here today, and you're sitting there going, what on earth is this bloke talking about? Who is Jesus? Then I'm going to pray that, that you're able to put your hand up and say, no, actually, I want to find out more. I want to come into a relationship with him because whatever I've said has been inadequate. It's not been enough. I can't do justice to it. But I can give you a glimpse. I can give you a tiny speck of the greatness of who he is. And if you're spend enough time around other people, you'll get more of those glimpses together and start to get a net sense of the majesty and the awesomeness and the wonder of Jesus. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here today and to, to spend this time together in your house. Lord, I thank you for Jesus and I thank you for what he has done in our lives and for what he continues to do in our lives.
And I pray for each person here today that is in relationship with Jesus, that they are able to come to have a fuller revelation of who he is, a a stronger and a, a deeper understanding of what it is that he was here for and what it is that he is present in our lives for. Lord, I just pray for anyone here today who who doesn't know Jesus yet. That this is a time for them to come forward, to to lift their hand and say, I don't don't understand, but I want to know more. Lord, I I just want to connect into this idea of who Jesus is. Please, please forgive me and bring me that opportunity to come into relationship with Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you again. I thank you for this chance to share this morning and to be in your family. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.